Well, as part of a series that we're doing entitled Lies Preachers Tell, we are taking a look at the um, common teaching that Christians are under the moral law, meaning that the Ten Commandments are still binding upon their conscience and their conduct. And um, that's a certain theological system that teaches that widely. It has drifted over into more independent evangelical churches as well, so that you'll hear somebody not even associated with a, a theological system or a denomination refer to the moral law, refer, refer to the Ten Commandments as the moral law. And that all stems from the theological fabrication that somehow the law has been divided up into civil ceremonial, and moral, with the Ten Commandments being the moral law. And that the civil and the ceremonial have been fulfilled in Christ, but that somehow uh, the moral law hasn't been. And as if the atoning work of Christ and the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost was not adequate to fulfill the moral law, which is exactly, by the way, what the new covenant is designed to do, and that is to fulfill the moral law by writing the law on hearts and minds, by God placing his spirit within us. The moral law is fulfilled. In fact, in Romans 8, 3, and 4, Paul makes it vividly clear that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in us who no longer walk by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Now, folks, this is really good news. <laughs> I am joyful and delighted to share that with you, especially if you're in one of these traditions or one of these churches that will still try to sell you on the fact that the laws written on tablets of stone and codified in the Mosaic law are still binding upon your conscience and dictate how you spend Sunday as the Sabbath and and how you dress, maybe, how you even, how you do worship at your church, and so on and so on. See, once you take a step into the law, you find yourself, it's a slippery slope. And so you can't just say, well, I'm going to obey part of the law, and I'm not going to have to regard the rest of it. God doesn't give you that option. Paul said it very clearly in Galatians 5 to those who were considering circumcision. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, you, you're going to have to keep the whole law. You're, you're going to have to observe the whole law. And if you don't, by the way, you'll be under a curse, the curse of the law. Do you really want to move back under the blessing or the curse of the Mosaic law? And, of course, they will say, no, 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 that's not what we meant. We don't mean that the law should be regarded as a system of salvation, just as a system of sanctification and useful 
a tool for sanctification and a rule of life for the Christian. But you won't find that terminology, you won't find that that teaching anywhere in the New Testament. What you will find is Paul saying very clearly in Galatians 5, 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Whereas, previously, Paul, when he was Saul the Pharisee, would have said something more like this, But I say, walk by the law, and you will not carry out the the sinful desires. But that's not where he's at now. He's an apostle. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's living within the eschatological and covenantal context of the gospel. He's a preacher of righteousness. Yes, he refers to the law from time to time. But he does so within a new covenant context. And so he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That was the whole gig of the Judaizers. The whole gig of the Judaizers says, well, I'm glad you received Jesus as our Messiah, as your Messiah now, and I'm glad that you have had this initial experience of conversion with the Spirit. But now you have to understand that you have to come under the law to be fully rounded out as a good Christian. Paul said, that's another gospel, and you're under a double curse. That's how he responded to that. But today, a young Christian will, or any age for that matter, but I mean but young by spiritual, will step into the baptisms, uh, baptismal uh, tub, and come up out of the waters of baptism, glowing, having been converted by the Spirit, through the hearing of the gospel, and before they're hardly toweled off, some deacon will walk up and stick a tithe pledge card in their pocket. And they'll be told, if you don't start tithing 10% of your gross income, you'll be subject to all kinds of bad things. You'll be under a curse. Read it for yourself. Malachi 3, 8 through 12. And so it begins. You have to come back to church on Sunday night if you're really justified, if you're really in Christ. Because after all, it's the Sabbath. There's only one, you can't, you can't, uh, nobody can read and interpret scripture or provide over the Lord's Supper except the minister, the pseudo-Levitical priest. This is how this starts, and it gets becomes so entrenched, it becomes so widespread, it so prevails that the average Christian just assumes that's just the way it is, that's the way it's supposed to be, that's the way it's always been done. And it's not. So today, we're going to look at the first Judaizers. How did this begin? How did this happen after Pentecost? What occurred after Pentecost that this issue of the moral law, meaning the whole law, because the Pharisees did not come preaching the moral law. They came preaching the whole law. 
including circumcision for Gentiles. How did this get started? But you know, it was it's kind of a stunning, really. And I, th- I think we can look back to John chapter 12, where it says that some of the, the um, rulers believed in Jesus, even before our Lord's suffering. It says in John 12:42, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. That's probably those same people, including a group of the Pharisees themselves, who were present in Jerusalem at Pentecost. And they experienced, they were professed believers who experienced the, the, the coming and the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and were Christians, found themselves as part of this community now, set apart by the Holy Spirit, and yet unable, listen clearly, to break free of their previous tradition. So that as the apostolic mission developed, especially under Paul, some years later, some men, it says in Acts chapter 15, came down from Judea to Antioch and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So here you are, you're a Gentile, you've had this powerful experience of having the apostle come and preach the gospel to you and you've received that gospel by grace through faith you've been filled with the spirit you receive the spirit all is well you've been prayed for perhaps you've even been baptized And you're beginning to live the Christian life. And here come these very astute-looking men from Jerusalem. And they set up camp and began to teach you that, well, it's good that all of this has happened to you. We're really happy for you. But in order for you to be complete now, you have to come under the law of Moses. And you, not knowing better... I mean, you're, you're simply a Gentile who's been saved. These men, my goodness, they're, they've got hundreds of years of tradition behind them. Surely they know what they're talking about, and Paul's not here anymore, so maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe we should, yeah, maybe we should start considering this. So what do we have to do? Well, you have to be circumcised. Oh, that. Okay. And you'll probably have to change some of your dietary laws. Oh, okay. We can do that. We can change the menu. And let's see. You'll probably have to start observing the Sabbath, uh, some feast days, some holy days. Okay, well, I guess if we have to, we have to. We, we love Jesus and we want to serve him. 
We want to we want to do what's right in his eyes. And these men fold their arms and smugly say, Wonderful. Now, so deceptive was this that back at Antioch, Peter and Barnabas and some of the other of their associates were settling in, rejoicing in the gospel, rejoicing in the newfound freedom that they have in Christ. And eating with the Gentiles, no question. Fellowshipping with the Gentiles freely. And then these same men come up from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Peter gets intimidated by these very astute rabbis, who are now professing Christians as well, by the way. Jewish itinerant preachers moving from place to place, teaching the Gentiles that they have to be under law. And so Peter's intimidated by these men. These are men of credentials. These are men of tradition. These are men that I was taught growing up to respect. And so Peter said, what does it matter anyway? I'll just stop eating with the Gentiles and start eating with the Jews instead. And we'll just have two separate tables at lunchtime. There'll be the Gentile Christians over here and the Jewish Christians over there, and I will sit with the Jewish Christians because I have a Jewish heritage. And that, for the time being, was what the men who came up, the Jewish itinerant preachers came. That, that was that's a good beginning, Peter. And Barnabas and the other associates that were with them got carried away, swept away into this hypocrisy. And then long came Paul. And Paul said, Cephas, Peter, what are you doing? What are you doing here? You're not standing in truth. You're not standing up for the gospel. You're conceding the point to these men. These men who are preaching another gospel, you're going to cozy up to them? And so he rebukes Peter openly. This is how this all began. So you had this two, these two streams here. You had the apostolic gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ and conversion being affirmed by the gift of the Spirit, God's acceptance, by the way, being confirmed by the gift of the Spirit. And you had this group over here that said, yes, yes, we believe in Jesus. We, the, we believe he's the Messiah. We, too, have pledged our loyalty to him. But we insist that you must come under law. The law has not been abrogated. The law has not been done away with. No, no. You have to come under law too. That you are identified as among the people of God because you keep the law. Not because you simply have the Spirit. You see how these teachings diminish the Spirit? 
and dare we say even blaspheme the Spirit? This is the gravity of what we're talking about here, folks. So these are the two streams then that began here in Acts 15. And these Judaizers never let up. Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians to address this issue. And he closed that letter with, Let no one from henceforth bother me, for I bear in my mark the marks of the Lord. But that didn't stop. I used to think so. I used to think, well, good. Paul got in and he addressed this issue and he put to rest this controversy once for all, just like they did in the Jerusalem Council. But it didn't. And it continued. And then they came into Corinth. And then they came into Colossia. And this controversy, this contrast between the gospel of grace and the gospel of of grace plus law. See, that's important. It wasn't like the Judaizers were denying grace. They weren't saying, we're saved by works. No. Any more than the Catholics or the Orthodox say that today. You'll never get a good Catholic who knows what they're talking about to say, we're saved by works. No. They'll say, no, no, we're saved by grace. We agree with you Protestants. We, oh, it's all great, as will a good Greek Orthodox. We're saved by grace, plus works. And there are those within Protestantism that will tell you the same thing today. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, except that alone includes you having to keep the moral law, quote, end quote. Last week I reminded you that when we talk about moral law, we talk about that, that, that fabricated teaching, unbiblical teaching, that somehow the Ten Commandments are left unfulfilled by the atoning work of Christ. Now, regarding the Jerusalem Council, back to Acts chapter 15, it is important to note two important things happened there. This is very important history. So this is not just Rick the professor giving you some good, <laughs> some good uh, church history. This, this is stuff that once you grasp it, once you apply it, once you begin living it out in practice on an existential basis, you will see a spurt in your growth spiritually. You will begin to feel your mind being renewed. This is the effect the true effect of the true gospel. So there's two important things that happened at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. First, the apostles rejected the necessity of imposing the law upon Gentile converts as well as Jews as being necessary for salvation. Now let me just ask you a question. When was sanctification not part of salvation? When did that happen? Because many who teach the moral law today will tell you, well, no, no, no. We, we don't preach the law for justification. We just say that it's binding for sanctification. 
Some might even soften it more and say, well, it's only useful for sanctification. But then they'll tell you you have to come to church on Sunday because it's just the Sabbath. You shouldn't spend time with your family on the afternoon uh, or friends and recreate on Sunday afternoon because it's the Sabbath. You should be home preparing to come back for the Sunday night Sabbath service. So you, there's just no way of getting around it. You start flirting with the law, you become a law person. So the apostles rejected at the council. Jerusalem council, the first Jerusalem council, Acts chapter 15, that neither Jew or Gentile was required to keep the law as necessary for salvation, including sanctification. Peter didn't break it out. He said very clearly that why should we put under the yoke of the disciples these Gentiles, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Now, we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So this is an important nuance in this text because Peter is declaring that Jews are not saved by law. Jews are not necessary to come under the law. Now, if you're part of an ethnic heritage and you want to keep a Sabbath, keep a Sabbath. Just don't make it part of mandatory requirements for all Christians. If you want to eat a kosher diet, eat a kosher diet. But just don't make it mandatory for salvation or impose it upon all Christians. That's the point. Nowhere did the apostles ever teach that if you have a Jewish heritage and you like some of the things about the Jewish heritage and you want to continue to practice them, you shouldn't do that. He said, go ahead, do it. Eat how you choose. You have liberty. You have freedom. Keep one day in seven if you like or not. It's up to you. It's a matter of conscience. Just don't impose it upon your Gentile brother. But the, the powerful thing in Acts chapter 15 is that Peter declared, Peter declared that not even Jews are saved by law. But we believe that we, Jews, are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus in the same way they, Gentiles, also are. And then the second thing that happened at the Jerusalem Council is that Peter said this because he had witnessed God giving the Holy Spirit to those Gentiles to whom he preached, just as he did to the Jewish disciples. Peter got it. You might remember the story in Acts chapter 10 where uh, he had a vision. He was hungry, went up on the roof and had a vision. The curtain went down three times showing all kinds of non-kosher animals. And, and then the voice said, kill and eat. And Peter said, no, 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 I've never done that. I never will. He was being a good Jewish boy. Finally, the Spirit spoke to him and said, don't call unclean what I have called clean. So Peter finally got it, came down off the roof and said, now what? And so these messengers from Cornelius come and say, come with us. He follows them. He goes to Cornelius. He sees these Romans standing there, Roman centurion and their friends. And he says, I'm supposed to preach to these people? They're Gentiles. But I get it now. I get it. I'm supposed to preach to these people. I now perceive that God is an accepted of all those who seek him, he said. 
and he began to preach. But before he could get half of his sermon out, the Holy Spirit fell on him, on, on them. They began to speak in other tongues. They received the Spirit, and the Gentile mission to the world began. And it was the gift of the Spirit that Peter witnessed as being the sole indicator that God had accepted these Gentiles just as God had accepted them. It was the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit that marked out the people of God, the reconstituted Israel. Now, if you're of a dispensational background, that last statement probably sent you reeling because you've been told all your life that there are two peoples of God, the church and Israel, national Israel. You've been told there's two eternal places. There's the heavenly people where the Gentile Christians would be and the earthly people where the Jewish Christians would be. That's a lie. That's a simple lie. It's, it's, it's a theological fabrication. The Bible does not teach that. You say, where do you find that, Rick? Ephesians chapter 2. He is, he is, by his cross, he has made both one. There's one people of God. Peter himself says in 1 Peter 2, you are a holy nation, the people of God. He's speaking to Gentiles. See, if you really want to find out the truth, and you're part of some long-standing tradition, your dispensationalism or covenant theology or some kind of charismatic background or some kind of Methodist background, you really want to find the truth, you don't have to become a scholar. You just have to start reading your Bible within con in the context and prayerfully asking for the, the, the illuminating ministry of the Spirit to help you see that revelation in the pages of Scripture. You just have to look back at church history and find out that the history of dispensationalism itself is silly, ridiculous. Some young lady has a vision at a conference. She gets in an ecstatic state and speaks of a rapture, a secret rapture, and then John Nelson Darby takes that up and starts running with it and builds a whole system of theology around it. And millions of people today subscribe to it, thinking it's biblical truth. Just like the first century Jews believed that the traditions of the elders was God's authoritative word to them. That is, until Jesus came along in Mark chapter 7, in told them your traditions are man-made rules and you've actually set aside the word of God to observe them you're hypocrites you will receive the greater condemnation see this is scary stuff very sobering but it's also very liberating the word of God really does liberate us folks the word of God really does set us free to joyously worship our Lord and risen Savior. So Peter attested at Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council to this principle. 
Peter attested to the sufficiency of the gift of the Spirit as affirming that God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith, he said. Chapter 15, 8 and 9. Neither was the law necessary as a preparation for the apostolic preaching. When Peter went to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, he did not preach the law first. You would have thought if anybody was going to it, it would have been Peter. You think he would have walked in amongst those Roman centurions and the, and the people gathered and he would have said, Okay, sit down now. I'm going to read you Leviticus. But he didn't. I'm going to read you Deuteronomy. Or at least I'm going to read you the moral law out of Exodus chapter 20. So that you're good and convicted. You're good and guilty before I preached you the free grace of God in Christ. <laughs> See, when you begin to look at these things, you begin to hear yourself say it out loud. So much of what people believe today is just silly. It's absurd. Peter did not preach the laws preparatory to the Roman centurion Cornelius and those Gentiles with him that day. He did not believe that he had to preach the gospel, uh, excuse me, preach the law either before or after Cornelius' Cornelius's conversion. He said, I got to preach the law so that you're good and guilty, and I have to preach the law after your conversion, after you receive the gift of the Spirit, to ensure that you are going to be sanctified. He didn't say that. As he was turning to walk away from Cornelius and his company that day, Peter didn't stop and say, Oh, by the way, make sure you keep the Ten Commandments and that you, you uh, follow the moral law. The civil and the ceremonial law was fulfilling in Jesus, but, but the moral law is still uh, something you have to obey, especially as you wild Gentiles. Peter didn't say that. No, he said the law was a yoke that neither he or his fellow Jews could bear. Why do we, would we dare put it upon the Gentile believers now? But what was necessary and vital to affirm by Peter? What was it that Paul, Peter, and Paul, for that matter, affirmed as being absolutely vital to affirm God's acceptance of both Jew and Gentile. It was God giving the Spirit to those who heard and believed the gospel. And anything more was to be bewitched. You know where that comes from, right? Galatians chapter 3. They had received, they had heard the gospel, and now, somebody had told them they have to add the law to be well-rounded Christians. And Paul's response to that is, Oh, foolish Galatians! Who bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to learn from you. Just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing with faith? See, Paul didn't find any convoluted point there. He didn't say, 
Okay, so you want to keep the works of the law. Just don't forget your faith. Just don't forget that you have faith in Jesus. No. He made a clear dichotomy. This is the only thing I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Now, why was it so important that he make that distinction about receiving the Spirit? Was it simply the experience that he wanted him to recall? No. Remember what we just read in Galatians 5, 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. It is by the Spirit that the fruits of the Spirit come to identify and, and characterize the people of God, not by the law. You know what will happen to a, a, a Christian group who begins to try to live under the law? The works of the flesh. That's what will happen. That's why Paul wrote that in Galatians 5. He wasn't just casually and randomly just throwing out there, well, by the, oh, by the way, this is the works of the Spirit and the, work, the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Just so for posterity's sake, you can write these things down and, and, then, and then kind of go through them and make a law out of it. No, 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 no. He was saying very clearly to this Galatian community, if you walk by the Spirit, you'll look like this. If you walk by the law in the flesh, you're going to look like the works of the flesh. You're going to become apparent. Now, you may have, for convenience sake, a nice form of godliness that covers it up, but you will have denied the power of the gospel, and you will be looking like the works of the flesh. That's what your life will look like. And he initiates that point by asking them, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? It was a bewitching, it was sorcery, it was idolatry that he was addressing here. These people were complete in Christ. They were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They were accepted before God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ alone, and a spirit was given to them. God gave his spirit to them to affirm that. And nothing more was needed, nothing more was needed pre-conversion or post-conversion. The spirit is all-sufficient. We are commanded as Christians to walk by the Spirit. The sufficiency of the gift of the Spirit is one of the most diminished, set-aside, distorted, even discarded doctrines within American evangelicalism. We're always looking for some external measure rather than working out the character of Christ from the inside out, we're always looking to try to take it and push it in us. So this gift of the Spirit, beloved, is God's sufficiency for both regeneration, conversion, and the ongoing life of faith in Jesus Christ. Tragically, despite the divine witness and the decree of the apostles at the Jerusalem Council, Jewish traditionalists continued to teach that the Gentiles must come under the law of Moses. It never stopped. It never ended. Paul didn't put to rest that controversy. 
he did, under divine inspiration of the Spirit, address it in his letter to the Galatians, to his letters to the Corinthians, in his letter to the Colossians. And the Spirit continued to address that issue in the letter to the Hebrews. And throughout the New Testament, and even the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 began to address it, referring to those false teachers who say they are Jews, he said, but are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. That's the words of Jesus. That's not my words. This controversy, this, this alternative gospel that tells you that somehow the Mosaic law must be some way somehow, to some small degree, a part of your life or you're not a real Christian is a lie from the pits of hell. So we cannot say that this issue was ever resolved within church history. And the confusion regarding the role of the life and of the law in the believer's life remains with us today, tragically. But, let me just say clearly, it was resolved in the mind of God. It was resolved in the mind of the risen Christ. It was resolved in the mind of the Spirit. It was resolved in the mind of our apostles. And it is resolved within the mind and the words of the Holy Scripture, the inspired text. What's necessary now is to get it resolved in your mind, beloved, And move away from anything that would draw you back to shrink back. I'm going to close now with a lesson I gave earlier in an early episode regarding the Legacy Standard Bible. But I want you to catch this here and then we'll close. This is the gravity of what I'm talking about here. This is why I'm doing this series. I'm not doing it because I just have an itch to teach. I have counseling appointments. I have other things to do. But I care about how these things affect you. That's why I do the work I do. Now we, are, we recall that in Galatians chapter 2, Peter was beginning to eat with the Gentiles out of fear. He was intimidated by those men who had come up from, from uh, Jerusalem. And it says in the Legacy Standard Bible, in Galatians chapter 2, Verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, he, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to shrink back and separate himself, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Now, important that same Greek word that's translated rightly here, shrink back, shows up later in Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to leave you with this. So please, finish listening. I want to leave you with this somber, sober awareness. Remember, Peter had begun to shrink back. And in Hebrews 10, 38, we read. I'll start with um, verse 36. 
For you have need of endurance, and that's you, beloved. You have need of endurance, or you have need to come out of something, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, same word, same Greek word as in Peter's experience. And if he shrinks back, listen carefully, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Shrinking back into law, and let me, let me say this very clearly, shrinking back to begin to relate to God on the basis of the Mosaic law at any point of your life, on any level, to even the smallest degree, to even the smallest jot or tittle, is to shrink back from faith. And to shrink back from faith, God has said clearly to us, my soul has no pleasure in him. And it's a path of shrinking back to destruction. So please, I plead with you, hear what I'm saying. Hear the history of it. Hear the scriptural witness to it. And come out of it. Come away from it. I realize the gravity of what I'm saying. I realize. I, I hate to say it so clearly and boldly. I would prefer people just get the message without me having to be quite so clear sometimes. But, but if you're attending a Presbyterian or Reformed type of church and they're teaching some kind of covenant of grace that covers up all the other covenants and, and still teaching you that the moral law applies to you and, and subscribing to you Sunday as a Sabbath and, and so on and so on and, and baptizing your infants as covenant children, you're living a lie. You're shrinking back. There's a whole history behind Zwingli and the founding of that system. And we'll talk about that in another episode, in a future episode. Now, if you disagree with me, I get it. I understand. This is shocking. This is like when Jesus said, how rich, how does a rich man ever enter the kingdom of God? Or he declared, actually, a rich man will never enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is. And the disciples said, what? Who then can be saved? I mean, in their good little Jewish minds, everything about wealth was a blessing from God. A rich man was clearly loved by God. And then Jesus comes along and says that. It's just as shocking to your mind, probably, as when Jesus said, beware of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. The disciples had grown up being taught to respect the Pharisees, to respect the scribes. They were the most righteous of the righteous in Israel. And now this Nazarene carpenter that we're following says, 
beware of their teaching. He says in Matthew 5.20, to these good Jewish people listening about their rabbis, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. You will no way enter the kingdom of God. These were shocking things to the ears of a first century Jew. And it could be that the truth is just as shocking to your ears today as well. If you are entrenched in a system, if you're entrenched in a covenant system or a in a or a uh, dispensational system or a Methodist system or some charismatic system, you have to at least become willing to examine it in the light of Scripture. You have to at least be willing to put to the test your own system, your own systematic theology. You have to be willing to ask for the Lord's sake, is this really true? And then it's between you and the Lord at that point. And I pray for you. I care about what that the the I care about the uh, crises that that represents for you. But let me assure you, as one has gone through it, if Jesus is worth it, your fellowship with the Father and the Son by the ministry of the Spirit is worth it. To be able to read the scriptures with a clear eye, a single eye, is worth it. To be able to enhance your simplicity and the purity of your devotion to Christ is worth it. To begin to, perhaps for the first time in your life, to truly rejoice in your faith. To know the peace of God that passes all understanding. Having removed all the obstacles of religiosity that stood in the way of that before that. So come back. Please keep joining me. We'll go into the moral law, part three. And I hope you continue to listen. May the Lord bless and strengthen you, keep you in his grace always. Amen.